0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 15, Exodus chapters 17 and 18. Well, as we leave behind the establishment in Exodus of a daily food supply for the Israelites, something called... Manhu, we call it manna, which just simply means, what is it? Let's move on now into Exodus chapter 17. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. The whole community of the people of Israel left the seen desert traveling in stages as Adonai had ordered and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moshe demanding, give us water to drink. But Moshe replied, why pick a fight with me? Why are you testing Adonai? However, the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moshe. For what did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? To kill our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to Adonai, What am I to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. And Adonai answered, Moshe, go on ahead of the people and bring with you the leaders of Israel. Take your staff in your hand, the one you used to strike the river, and go. I will stand in front of you there on the rock in Horeb. You are to strike the rock and water will come out of it so the people can drink. Moshe did this in sight of the leaders of Israel. The place was named Massah and Mervah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Adonai by asking, is Adonai with us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moshe said to Yahushua, Choose men for us. Go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with God's staff in my hand. Yahushua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Then Moshe, Aharon, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. When Moshe raised his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he let it down, Amalek prevailed. However, Moshe's hands grew heavy, so they took a stone put it under him, and he sat on it. Aharon and Hur held up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other, so that his hands stayed steady until sunset. Thus Yahushua defeated Amalek, putting their people to the sword. Adonai said to Moshe, write this in a book to be remembered and tell it to Yahushua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moshe built an altar and called it Adonai Nisi, all right, and said, because their hand was against the throne of Yah, Adonai will fight Amalek, generation after generation. Well, as the 17th chapter of Exodus opens, we have the Israelites leaving the seen Desert, which is... Right up in this area here, towards, well, modern day a lot, towards the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. Right up right up in this area, it kind of borders where the Sinai Peninsula meets the Arabian Peninsula, the Sinai Desert. And they start moving on towards Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, also known as the Mountain of God. All interchangeable terms in the Bible. Now, one wonders if they had uh, had understood the significance of the occurrences of the last several weeks or if they had any inkling that God was in the process of molding and shaping them. I mean, is it possible that the miracles of the plagues against Egypt, the Hebrews release from bondage, the parting of the Red Sea, the turning of the bitter waters of Marah into sweet, drinkable water, Could all this be so easily dismissed and forgotten in just a few days? I mean, their faith going up and down like an elevator. How could it be that that visible cloud that led them both day and night, God's actual and real presence right before them wasn't enough to assure them at all times that God was in control? But such was the case with this weak, quarrelsome, insecure people. Let's hope it's not that way with us as well. Once again, they needed water. They are human. They were in a barren desert. And needing water was just a necessity of life and a very reasonable concern to have. Okay. Their journey, the Israelites journey, necessarily was one of moving from oasis to oasis. Food was not the issue anymore. They had it raining from the sky. But water was always an issue to nomadic tent dwellers. There is no indication that the Israelites even thought to approach God about their need for water. Rather, they just griped. They worried. They doubted, they feared, right? a- and they blamed. They blamed Moses and they blamed Yehovah. Now, this situation was a little different than before when they needed water. Because where Moses led them this time, there was not even a hint of water, which in itself is kind of strange. I mean, Moses was a very experienced desert dweller, having lived in Midian. And I suggest he was probably only a few miles from where the people, from where Israel stood thirsty at this very moment. He would only have taken them to a place where normally you would expect there would be water. So probably we're dealing with some kind of unexpected drought condition on the Arabian Peninsula, and the water source Moses reasonably expected to be present near a place called Rephidim was all dried up. Then naturally, this was indeed a potential disaster for Israel. Yet, one would reasonably assume that Israel would have remembered back to only a couple of weeks earlier when at the Bitter Springs at Marah, God miraculously made the water drinkable for them. But apparently they not only forgot about God's interest in satisfying their physical need for water, but they never grasped the significance and the lesson contained within the solution. Let's revisit Marah for just a moment. Back in Exodus chapter 15, we find Israel grumbling and in need of water theme we're going to see occurring over and over again. Moses brings them to a spring, an oasis, that in its natural state had water that was very bitter to the taste, but when some special unnamed wood, obviously something that was available locally, was immersed into that bitter water at God's command, the water is cleansed of its bitterness, it's cleansed of its bad taste, and it became useful to save their lives. I mean, this is such a beautiful picture of what Christ was going to do for us 1,400 years into the future. I and mean, here we are, mankind, our corrupt natural state, being full of bitterness. I mean, bitterness, you know, in our Western way of thinking, generally is an emotion. It's an attitude or maybe even a mental state. It it means typically that we're hanging on to offenses and hurts. We've developed a sense that life maybe has been unfair to us. And as a result, we, we, we view the world around us cynically. And we we reject joy. But you know, that typically is not what the Bible means by bitterness. Rather, scripturally, bitterness means the opposite of sweet in both a real and a poetic sense. Bitter means unbearable pain, usually at the hands of another. Suffering with no hope of escape. Oppression. Oppression. Okay. The root word for bitter, mara, is even associated with poison. Okay. The Jews of Nazi Germany were bitter; they were in a hopeless state of oppression beyond their own control. That's what the Bible means by bitter. Okay, bitter as a negative state of existence is often used to describe the Israelites' condition in Egypt. And bitter is our natural state as men. Unable to save ourselves. Unable to change ourselves. Unable to shuck off by ourselves our bitter existence. Even when we don't even recognize it as being bitter. And now comes Christ. Who was hung onto a piece of wood, his precious blood spilled all over it. But what miraculous qualities that wood that cross has, for when the divine wood, the cross, is immersed into our lives, into our bitterness, our oppression is taken away. Often when something is immersed into a liquid, that object that is immersed takes on a different character. You know, in point of fact, the Greek word baptismo, from where we get our English word baptized, simply means to immerse. The word baptismo is a word that was borrowed from the cloth dyeing trade of the biblical era. That is, a natural cloth was baptismo into a vat of dye, where the cloth took on the characteristics of that which it was immersed into. And so it is with those who are crucified with Yeshua. His wooden cross, immersed into our bitter lives, transforms our lives and makes them sweet and free from the oppression of the power of sin. This is the picture intended at the spring of Marah, out in the wilderness. Well, let's return to chapter 17 and Israel's newest need for water. Moses reminded them that while they may think that their grumbling is against him, it's really against God. And Moses asked why they would test Jehovah. Now remember our Hebrew lesson about this word we typically translate as test or tempt in some Biblical versions. And that the Hebrew word used here is the same as we saw earlier. It's nasah, nasah. And it carries with it the sense of being hauled into court and being put before a judge. That is a trial proceeding. So what Moses accused the people of doing was very literally putting God on trial. They were putting themselves in the position of judging God. Yet once again, God's merciful. Rather than rebuking Moses or the people for their lack of faith, he simply provides for them. God tells Moses to take the people's representatives, the elders, and go to the rock That was at or near Mount Horeb. And there, using the same staff that Moses held up to part the Red Sea, Moses was to strike the rock and then water would pour from it. Enough for everybody. Now, it's interesting that this is the second time we have found Moses being ordered to strike something with his staff. And both times, it had to do with water. The first time was when he struck the Nile River and turned it bloody red, making it undrinkable. Now he'll strike the rock and the rock will produce drinkable water. Okay. Also notice how the staff of Moses, which is really but God's staff of authority placed into Moses' hands, was used in one case at the Nile for wrath upon people who were not his the Egyptians, but in our current case it was going to be used to provide mercy and protection for people who were his own. Now, it's important that we see this rather difficult attribute of God. That from the same source, the Lord, comes blindness and comes revelation, destruction and salvation, darkness and light, Shalom, despair. Goodness to those who submit to his lordship. Calamity to those who refuse it. I mean, we commit a terrible idolatry when we discard those characteristics of Yehovah that bother us and retain only those that please us. For indeed to do so makes us guilty of forming our own God image from our own minds. And this is the very definition of idolatry. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out what could not possibly have been understood by Moses and the elders. Okay, And it is that this event of striking the rock is yet another shadow of a future event. Christ... Called the rock was smitten that living water would pour forth from him for all of his, for all of God's people. And let's also remember that when Yeshua, who was himself living water, was stabbed with that Roman spear, that all who were watching saw physical, real water gush from that wound. This event at Horeb and the crucifixion at Calvary were completely connected on both physical and spiritual levels. Allow me to point out another interesting connection that's not readily seen in the English, but it is in the original Hebrew. Moses was to use his staff, also called his rod, right, in God's name to strike that rocket Horeb just as he struck the Nile about a year earlier. Remember back in earlier chapters of Exodus when we discovered... That the word used to describe the nine blows, usually called the nine plagues, that God visited upon Egypt, that word in Hebrew was nacha, not nasa, but nacha. Right. Don't mix up two very similar sounding Hebrew words, nasah and nacha. Nasah means to hold a trial, like we just saw, while nacha means to strike. To hit to deliver a blow. Okay. This word nacha, meaning to hit, would not be used, by the way, to describe something benign, like hitting a nail with a hammer. Okay, that's that's not where you use nacha, because it carries with it a, a a sense of attack, attacking with a purpose to cause harm, severe harm. Even to kill. Looking back, we can understand why nakah would have been used to appropriately describe those devastating strokes of God upon Egypt that began with Moses striking the Nile River. So the use of the word nakah when describing hitting the rock... So that water would come forth seems kind of out of place. I mean, what would be the point of using a word like nacha that has with it an aura of malice, of violence, in that setting? And you know something? The rabbis have mused for centuries on just why that word, nacha, which portrays, portrays striking something with a sense of harm, would be used with Moses bringing forth water for his people to drink. Well, if it were not for the connection with what would eventually happen to our rock, Yeshua, when he was struck with malice and with violence, the use of that Hebrew word at Horeb would be out of place. We're told in verse 7 that the place where the Israelites grumbled about needing water was named Masah and Merbah, usually translated testing and quarreling. A better translation of Masah than testing would be tempting. By the way, notice that this is not the same word as used earlier. All right, this Nasah and Nakah. Now, why is the word tempting better here? Because these people who have followed the cloud now God's very presence for two months now slapped God in the face by asking at the end of verse 7, well, is God with us or not? Hmm. Suddenly in verse 8, the scene changes and the people become engaged in their first battle with a hostile neighbor. Now this, of course, this battle, this was the very thing that God had arranged for Israel to avoid in their first days of their exodus because he insisted that they take the desert wilderness route rather than taking the more direct route to Canaan using that major highway between Egypt and Canaan called the Way of the Philistines. So for whatever reason, this battle with Amalek was a battle that God wanted Israel to fight. Well, we find out later in Deuteronomy 25 that Amalek attacked the rear of the column of Israel which consisted primarily of the stragglers the weak, the feeble, the sickly okay. this made what Amalek did all the more horrendous because Israel in no way threatened Amalek but it's not at all surprising that Amalek would be the first people to attack Israel because the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. So while Amalek was related to Israel because of the split between the twin brothers Jacob and Esau they were also enemies. Remember how Jacob connived get that firstborn blessing and all the wealth and power that went with it, away from his brother Esau, and then later Jacob, now called Israel, produced the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where all that started. Okay, In verse 9, Moses instructs Joshua, who would eventually become the leader of Israel after Moses' death, to select men who he would take with him to fight Amalek and then lead them into battle. As for Moses, he was going to go stand on a hill above the battlefield, probably with his staff in hand and along with him up on that hill would go his brother Aaron and a man named Hur. Now we can understand why Aaron Moses prophet and priest would accompany him but who is this Hur fellow? I mean, Well we find him mentioned again in Exodus 24 and it seems to be Aaron's personal assistant. Right, Though in the genealogies, he does not appear to be a blood relative. Talmudic tradition is, by the way, that Hur was Miriam's husband. Well, the battle begins. Joshua's down in the valley, leading his men. Moses, Aaron, and Hur up on the hilltop, observing, with Moses raising up his hand. It is usually presumed that he had his staff in his hand, but that's not really what the scriptures say. Okay. The presumption that he held up his staff in his hand is because it says he did take his staff with him and because after the victory, a victory altar was built to commemorate this battle and the altar was named Yehovah Nisi. All right. And therefore, this implies that it was a banner of some kind or an insignia or some kind of device that symbolized Israel. And verse 11 says that a very strange thing occurred. As long as Moses held his arm or hand up into the air towards the heavens, the battle tilted in Israel's favor. But as soon as he put his arm down for a rest, the paddle swung towards Amalek. So... Aaron and Hur had Moses sit on a stone and then one man on each side, they propped his arms up. Alright, so, so that his hand, or possibly the staff in it, all right, would never be lowered as his arms grew tired, not even for a momentary rest. Well, the battle goes on and on, as battles did in that day, until sunset. And so Joshua's men defeated Amalek. Now, a couple of things of interest. First, let's talk a little bit about Joshua. Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. Now, hopefully you recall our study of the last three chapters of Genesis when the importance of the tribe of Ephraim was discussed. In fact, to understand the end times and revelation, I urge you to study Ephraim, who is a key that unlocks the door to many biblical mysteries. Technically, at the time of this battle with Amalek, Joshua was not yet called Joshua. His name was Hosea. Or in English, Hosea. Now this is not the same Hosea as the prophet Hosea that has his own book of the Bible. Hosea means help. Or it means salvation. Now sometime following this battle, Hosea's name was changed. Now, we've seen this name changing before, haven't we? Abraham started out as Abram, meaning father of many. Later, God said you'd be called Avraham, meaning exalted father. We saw Jacob, Yaakov, have his name changed to Israel. Now, Hosea will have his name changed. And these two names, Yahushua and Hosea, are related, but we really can't see it unless they're presented in their original Hebrew. Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua. Okay, Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua, which means Yah saves, or God saves, or better, Yehovah saves. Most accurately in Hebrew, Hosea is Hoshua or O'Shea. So after the battle with Amalek, Hoshua has the word Yah added to the prefix of his name, so that it becomes Yah-Hoshua. So it's easy to see after this strange battle where Moses has to hold his staff up in order to beat Amalek, that the leader and victor of this momentous battle would get his name changed to a name that reflected what happened that day when God saved them from Amalek. Now one more thing and we'll move on. Yahoshua is simply longhand for a name we're all pretty familiar with. Yeshua. Jesus the Christ. Yes, in our modern vocabulary Joshua is the name Christ was born with. Okay, In Hebrew Yeshua, our Lord, had the same born given name as did this man who won the battle over Amalek. Here again, we have this Old Testament connection with the New Testament. Joshua, friend of Moses, physically saved Israel through God's power. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, spiritually saved Israel and all who would be joined to Israel through God's power. In both cases, this was an act of God doing the saving. And let me assure you, these connections are real, not contrived. Okay? They are here for us to see as connections, not coincidences. Unfortunately, often the connection isn't visible when it's not presented in the original Hebrew. Well, at the end of chapter 17, we get this bone-chilling instruction from God. It says he's going to completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He's going to fight Amalek generation after generation. He's determined to do this. Why? Why this ultimate condemnation from God upon Amalek? Well, Amalek was not only real and tangible, being exactly as reported, doing exactly as reported, But they were also a type. Amalek was Gentiles. So represents those Gentiles who come against Israel. Amalek were the first people to attack Israel after Israel was redeemed. Amalek represents that force which opposes God's people and God's plan that's to be worked out through his people. This is not the last time we're going to hear of Amalek in the Bible. Saul, King Saul, first king of Israel, will be commanded by God to destroy Amalek as a punishment for their attempt to stop the advance of Israel during Moses' days as their leader. Saul never accomplished that, by the way. Several centuries later, the evil Haman of Esther fame, of the time of Purim, okay, is said to have been a descendant of Amalek. Many Arabs today are from the family of Amalek, which is of the tribe of Esau. The Jordanians, specifically, are a people whose ancestors are a mix of Ishmael and Esau. Okay, So Moses now builds an altar after this battle, a typical victory altar. Okay. This altar was a monument. Okay, It was a marker to commemorate the battle of Israel and God against Amalek. So the altar was named Yehoveh Nisi. Yehovah is my banner. And as we end this chapter, permit me to mention something briefly about Moses' staff and it being referred to here as a banner to God. There, there is a critical God principle being set up, and it's this. Whenever we turn our staff over to God and we loosen our grip on it, it becomes God's staff in His hand. Understand that in ancient times a staff, also sometimes referred to as a rod, and in later times yet as a scepter, is a symbol or a representation of authority. Moses' staff, in human terms, was a symbol of Moses' authority. But in raising his staff to heaven, the Bible called this act raising a banner. This is a symbolic act of turning his authority over to God, whereby God does something miraculous. The staff of Moses becomes the staff of God. Now see, this is the secret to the Christian life. As long as we cling tightly to our own personal authority and lordship over our own lives, then we're simply not usable by God. And there is absolutely no power in our own authority. The strongest, most powerful, most brilliant, most wealthy of all of us, ultimately, have only our own personal, natural, human abilities to count on, but turn that authority over to God, and he'll fill it with his power. Moses' staff, under Moses' authority, was just a dead piece of wood, even though it seemed to him like an indispensable tool. But that same staff, under God's authority, could part the Red Sea, it could turn the Nile to blood, it could bring water, From a rock, it can defeat the enemy in battle. This principle is often expressed in modern evangelical Christianity as yielding, submitting, surrendering everything to God. We see that principle being developed here in Exodus with Moses. Let's move on into chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Now Yitro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moshe's father-in-law, heard about all that God had done for Moses and Israel, his people, how Adonai had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah and her two sons, Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, had taken them back. The name of the one son was Gershom, for Moses had said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, my God helps, because the God of my father helped me by rescuing me from the Pharaoh's sword. Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Yitro's sons and wife to him in the desert where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He prostrated himself and kissed him. Then after inquiring of each other's welfare, they entered the tent. Moshe told his father-in-law all that Adonai uh, had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships they had suffered while traveling, and how Adonai had rescued them. Yitro rejoiced over all the good that Adonai had done for Israel by rescuing them from the Egyptians. And Yitro said, Blessed be Adonai who has rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, who has rescued the people from the harsh hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all other gods because he rescued those who were treated so arrogantly. Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aharon came with all the leaders of Israel to share the meal before God with Moshe's father-in-law. The following day, Moshe sat to settle disputes for the people while the people stood around Moshe from morning till evening. When Moshe's father-in-law saw that he was doing to the people, he said, What is this that you're doing to the people? Why do you sit there alone with all the people standing around you from morning till evening? Moshe answered his father-in-law, It's because the people come to me seeking God's guidance. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me. I judge between one person and another, and I explain to them God's laws and teachings. Moshe's father-in-law said to him, what you're doing isn't good. You will certainly wear yourself out, not only yourself, but these people here with you as well. It's too much for you. You can't do it alone by yourself. So listen now to what I have to say. I will give you some advice and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God and you should bring their cases to God. You should also teach them the laws and the teachings and show them how to live their lives and what work they should do. But you should choose from among all the people competent men who are God-fearing, honest, incorruptible to be their leaders in charge of thousands, of hundreds, fifties, and tens. Normally, they will settle the people's disputes. They should bring you only the difficult cases. But ordinary matters, they should decide themselves. In this way, they will make it easier for you and share the load with you. If you do this and God is directing you to do it, you will be able to endure. And all these people, too, will arrive at their destination peacefully. Moshe paid attention to his father-in-law's counsel, did everything he said. Moshe chose competent men from all Israel and made them heads over the people in charge of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. As a general rule, they settled the people's disputes, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but every simple matter they decided themselves. Then Moshe let his father-in-law leave and he went off to his own country. It was long ago recognized by the ancient Hebrew scribes and sages that this chapter is out of chronological sequence. The mention of God's laws and an altar and of Moses teaching God's laws to the people and then judging the people according to those rules could only have occurred after the law was given on Mount Sinai. As chapter 18 opens, we find Moses' father-in-law making a reappearance. Yitro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, has heard all about what's happened concerning Israel, and he comes to greet Moses. And then, you know, we've discussed this before, but news traveled fast in those days. People in other nations knew what was going on in other regions. And you can bet that there were many nations and regions holding their collective breath, wondering just where this three million strong mob was going to land. This is another of the many chapters of Exodus that for reasons unknown to me, although I do have my suspicions, that Bible translators consistently chose to insert the word God or Lord whenever the word Yehovah. Appeared. So when we look at the original language tests, texts, pardon me, what we see is that Yitro knew the God of the Hebrews' personal name. And we can safely assume that the same people and nations who knew of the happenings in Egypt concerning Israel also were very well aware of the name of Israel's God, Yehovah In that era, knowing a God's name was considered vital because the superstition was that if you knew the name of the God who lorded over some area of responsibility, let's say like the weather, or fertility, or prosperity, or battle, then by invoking that God's name, that God had to do what you requested. One of Yitro's purposes for coming to meet Moses, we're told, was to bring Moses' wife, Zipporah, plus their two sons, back to Moses. It says in verse 2 that she'd been sent home. Hmm. Well, that pretty well, pretty well fits with the tradition concerning Zipporah, that she was a real firebrand. That she created such a problem for Moses, that when Moses was on his way from Midian to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, she became completely belligerent and he set her home. All right. Anyone remember what the name Zipporah means? Well, it's a Bedouin name. It means bird. Of which she was anything but. Bird. And by the way, that name is still in use today. A lot of people in Israel named Zipporah. It is generally thought that the rather interesting episode where Zipporah publicly confronts Moses about his not having yet circumcised his sons, remember that? Okay. And God being angry with Moses to the point of threatening his life for this omission, that was the event that led Moses to send Zipporah and her sons back home to daddy. Okay. Now, verse 5 says that Moses was where? at the mountain of God when Yitro showed up. Now this is kind of interesting because it's another evidence that this story is a little bit out of order in Exodus because we don't even hear of the Exodus refugees moving and encamping at the foot of Mount Sinai until the next chapter. I warned you last week that the Torah is not always in perfect chronological order and this is one of those instances. But this is also well in line with the God-instructed incident of the striking of the rock in order that water might be obtained, because it said that this rock was in the mountain range of Horeb, which is the mountain range where Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, is located. I think it also reveals that that Yitro knew exactly where this mountain of God was. He knew this because A. It was very near to his own homeland, Midian B. Because there was apparently some sort of correspondence between Moses and Yitro as it says in verse 6 and C. Because Moses had likely taken him there some years earlier at the least made it very clear to Yitro where its location was Now I don't want to run it into the ground but it's very likely that the mountain of God was no more than a very few days journey at most from Nitro's home and so places Mount Sinai right where the Apostle Paul says it is in Arabia or better the Arabian Peninsula. Now, Let's remember that the mountain of God where Moses was leading the Israelite people right now was the same place where Moses had encountered God in the burning bush. And at the time of the burning bush incident, Moses was living where? in Midian with his father-in-law. It says now here, Moses runs out to meet his father-in-law and he falls prostrate before him. This was just a traditional sign of respect given to the head of the family, which at this time would have been Yitro. Now, you know, I think it sure would have been fun to overhear their conversation right about now. Moses talking to his young boys that he hadn't seen in so long. And his listening to their stories about what had been happening to them since his absence. And I'd sure like to know which Zipporah showed up. The one that mellowed maybe a little bit, maybe a little remorseful, kind of missing her husband. Or the one that gave him heck for going in the first place and then being gone too long. And of course, to hear of Moses recounting miracle after breathtaking miracle that Yehovah had performed to save Israel and reduce Egypt to just devastation. Then undoubtedly, relating to Yitro, this unending problems of dealing with this enormous population of never satisfied, ungrateful people who never missed an opportunity to tell Moses just what he was doing wrong. Well, now in verses 9 through 12, many scholars think that we have the recounting of a Gentile conversion to the religion of the Hebrews. Whose conversion? Yitro's. Yitro was a Gentile. He wasn't an Israelite. And although he is called a priest, he was not a priest of Yehovah, but of some other religion and some other system of gods. We, we, we don't have to assume that because the only priestly tribe of Israel was the Levites with the Levite Aaron as the high priest, and there is no indication anywhere that Yitro could possibly have been a member of Israel, let alone a Levite. So in order to offer a sacrifice on Israel's altar, he would have had to confess loyalty to Israel and to the God of Israel. So we get an important glimpse into the mind of the people of that era, as Yitro has the stories he has heard concerning the power of the Hebrew God completely confirmed now by Moses. In verse 11, Yitro makes the confession that Jehovah is greater than all other gods. And he follows that up, it says, by making a sacrifice to Jehovah in the presence of Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel and then finishing it up with a meal. Well, this was the standard way of making a covenant, a Brit. Back in Genesis, Genesis we discussed at length how covenants were cut. And here we see that what Jethro did was to make a covenant before God. Probably he was declaring his allegiance to Jehovah, therefore to Israel. Now, did he likely renounce all his other gods? Did Jethro now have complete adherence to a monotheistic ideal? That is, there was only one God and his name was Jehovah? Probably not. He simply acknowledged that Jehovah was the God of the Hebrews and the El, the chief God, the greater, the greatest of all the gods. Which would have been just fine with Israel because in general, that's how they also viewed Jehovah. Just the greatest God among many gods. Let me point out something else for you that will become more apparent after we finished Exodus and then get into the study of the book of Leviticus. Verse 12, almost universally in English translations say that Yitro brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. What it actually says in the original language is that Yitro brought an olah and a sevah for Yehovah. The olah was a very specific kind of Hebrew sacrifice, as was the zevah. And of course, we see that Yitro didn't bring those two exclusively Hebrew sacrifices, each with their own special meaning, which, by the way, it was only going to be ordained, in the law at Mount Sinai. He didn't bring those to some God in general. These sacrifices were, of course, just as it says, for the God named Jehovah. This is why I say, and I agree with many scholars who say, what we see here is what we would commonly call a conversion. I think we'll stop here and pick up some more of chapter 18 next week.